I was watching TV the other day, and this show comes on with these religious fanatics. They were crazy. Well, you would think they were crazy if you didn't understand their culture and their religion. See, that's just the thing. They were worshipers of idols, and they took things to extremes. They painted their bodies. They wore these ridiculous costumes. They chanted, they danced, they, they made sacrifices to their idols. They had built these enormous temples to worship their idols in. It seemed like their entire existence climaxed into this one scenario, this one over-the-top act of worship. You don't really relate, do you? Let's try it again. I was watching TV the other day, and this show comes on with these religious fanatics. They were crazy. See, that's just the thing. They were worshipers of idols, and they took things to extremes. They painted their bodies. They wore these ridiculous costumes. They chanted, they danced, they, they made sacrifices to their idols. They had built these enormous temples to worship their idols in. It seemed like their entire existence climaxed into this one scenario, this one over-the-top act of worship. Idol worship. It's not just about golden calves anymore. Some of you are saying, surely, surely he's not saying that sports can be idolatrous. <laughs> Some of you changed the, the first word in that statement in a tone, and you're saying, please tell me he's not saying sports can be idolatrous. Okay, if that's you, then this sermon's for you, okay? Um, I, I ran this video by a couple of our pastors in the office, and their responses were different. Because not every, sports does not serve this purpose in everybody's life. But one of our pastors, when he heard, saw this video, he says, his response was, now you've gone to meddling. Okay. <laughs> it just so happens that his favorite team is now the number one team in the nation in basketball. The other pastor I showed it to ha did not have that reaction. He just said, huh, you know, I'd give it a 7 out of 10. His school, I'm not sure they play basketball. He's, he's from Tennessee. So it wasn't, it wasn't an issue for him. Sports, while it may not be idolatrous for us all, or at least not for every season, um, there's a fascinating stu study and statement by a guy named Charles Prebish. He's the associated professor, associate professor of religious studies at Penn State. He says, in his opinion, sport is America's newest and fastest growing religion. He says, um, far out distancing whatever is in second place. It's not merely like a religion, he argues, nor is it a secular religion, as other religion scholars and sociologists have postulated. To Mr. Prebish, sport can and does provide its followers everything that traditional re religions have provided over the centuries. He writes, for me, it's not just a parallel that is emerging between sport and religion, but rather a complete identity. Sport is religion for growing numbers of Americans. Further, for many, sport religion has become a more appropriate expression of personal religiosity than Christianity, 
Judaism, or any of the traditional religions. So maybe this morning you're saying, well, I'm not a sports fan, or, or I'm a Tennessee fan, and you're thinking, I'm idol-free then, should that, should that be the case. Not, not so fast. Listen to this. This, uh, this study was fascinating. It comes from uh, James Bryan Smith talks about it in one of his books. He says, neurologists scanned the brains of people of, of faith as they recalled and experienced the times they felt close to God, either in prayer, worship, or solitude. And then they exposed the same people to a bunch of different images and things that connected people to God. And that same specific area of the brain, called the caudate nucleus, lit up in all of these people when they felt connected to God. The caudate nucleus, he says, is the part of our brain that's activated when we feel connected to the divine. He says it gets more interesting, though. Uh, the neurologist similarly tested another group, but this time exposed them to material possessions. When they showed images of products that were tied to cool brands, the exact same area of the brain lit up. The neuroscientists discovered that people who bought certain items experienced the same sensations as those who had deep religious experiences. Isn't it interesting, though, uh, that the Apostle Paul long ago wrote this. He says, Put to death, therefore, whatever is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, or greed, which is idolatry. Could it be that we really are idol worshipers in some way? Surely not us. Tim Keller warns us, he says, Jesus warns people far more often about greed than about sex. Yet almost no one thinks they are guilty of it. Therefore, we should all begin with a working hypothesis that this could easily be a problem for me. If greed hides itself so deeply, no one should be confident that it is not a problem for them, especially those of us who live in a country where, according to Time magazine, every day Americans buy an average of 4 million movie tickets, 1.6 million songs and albums from online resources, 1.6 million DVD rentals from Netflix every day. A million bags of Orville Redenbacher's gourmet popcorn every day. A half million Titleist golf balls every day. A half million large french fries from Burger King every day. 160,000 bottles of absolute vodka every day. 7,500 Samsung LCD TVs every day, along with 60 Ford Mustangs on eBay thrown in for good measure. What does it mean then? When we talk about idolatry, if it doesn't involve golden calves and little statues anymore. St. Augustine put it this way. He said, idolatry is worshiping anything that ought to be used or using anything that is meant to be worshipped. David Paulison gives us these probing questions that are meant to reveal the idols of our heart. He says, has something or someone besides Jesus the Christ taken title to your heart's trust, preoccupation, 
loyalty, service, fear, and delight. Who or what, he says, rules my behavior, the Lord or a substitute? He says, then, to keep yourself from idols is to live with a whole heart of faith in Jesus alone. So little statues are not required for idolatry. In fact, they never were. Long ago in the Old Testament, Ezekiel identifies this as a problem of the heart. He says in Ezekiel 14, Son of man, these men have taken their idols into their hearts. Idol worship, even in the Old Testament, was primarily a matter of the heart. And so today we are running headlong in our study of Deuteronomy right into a strong warning about idolatry and idol worship. It's not just for people who bow down before golden calves and little statues. There are still a number of cultures that do that precise ritual in our day. But it's not just about them. It's not just for people long ago or far, far away. It's for us. This warning is for us. And it comes to us in Deuteronomy chapter 4, starting in verse 15. If you'll find your way there in your Bibles, I'd like to pray for us, and we'll, we'll, we'll dig in. Okay, let's pray. God, at first, at first hearing, it's so easy for us to say, who, us? Worship idols? And yet... When it comes to our hearts, they are notoriously divided. And so I pray today that you would give us ears to hear your word, eyes to see our own hearts as they are, and great faith to break free from those snares that bind us. God, use your word. Pour out your spirit on us so that your word might have its way with us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, Deuteronomy chapter 4. Starting in verse 15, Moses says, Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully. Since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire, he's referring back to that smoking, fiery mountain where the Ten Commandments given. They didn't see God, but they heard Him. He says, Beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image or an idol for yourselves in the form of any figure, likeness of male or female, likeness of any animal that's on the earth, likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the water under the earth. And beware, lest you raise your eyes to heaven, and when you see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the host of heaven, you be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them things that the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. You know, just first hearing, you get the idea. No idols, okay? Doesn't matter what shape, doesn't matter what size, doesn't matter what image. There's a zero tolerance amongst God's people for worship competition with our one true God. Deuteronomy will later put it this way in chapter 27. Cursed be the man who makes a carved or cast metal image, an abomination to the Lord, a thing made by the hands of a craftsman and sets it up in secret, and all the people shall say, Amen. 
men. See, he, he's trying to get across the simple point, no idols. None. But he's picking all these different examples for a specific reason. These really were the live options of the people in their day. Um, the peoples who surrounded Israel worshipped these idols, uh, the ones that he is, is citing. And so it's good for us to stop and consider what are the idols of the people that we live among? What are the idols that are vying for our hearts? Tim Keller says, why do we lie or fail to love or break our promises or live selfishly? Of course, the general answer is because we are weak and sinful. But the specific answer is that there is something beside Jesus Christ that we feel we must have to be happy. Something that is more important to our heart than God. Something that is enslaving our heart through inordinate desires. The key to change, he says, and even to self-understanding, is therefore to identify the idols of the heart. So let's think, what are the idols that surround us that we might be vulnerable to falling into inordinate affection for. Here's a starter list. Money, possessions, pride, ambition, fame, other people, perfection, physical appearance, power, success, academic degrees, sports, career, alcohol, food, instant gratification, one's own opinion, even church programs and religion itself made the list of cultural idols in our day. You can ask these kinds of penetrating questions to help you think about whether those things, which are not idols in them themselves, are becoming that for you. What are you seeking? What are you loving? What are you fearing? What are you trusting? Where are you taking refuge? What voices are you listening to? Where are you setting your hopes? What do you consistently dream about, fantasize about? Where do you run when you are afraid or disappointed? Whose opinion matters most to you? See, what Moses is doing for us in this passage today is marshalling reasons and arguments for us to throw down our idols and worship the one true God. And he starts that uh, in the next verse, in verse 20 in our passage. He says to the people of Israel, he says, The Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be a people of his own inheritance as you are this day. And so he has them think about their great deliverance from Egypt. And he says, From that enslavement, you've been set free. Now, Egypt was notoriously um, pluralistic in their worship of gods and many gods. Um, they were rife with idols. Um, and it's interesting, in the book of Numbers, Moses says this about those plagues, especially the last one that were put upon the Egyptian people. He says, while the Egyptians were burying all their firstborn, whom the Lord had struck down among them, on their gods also the Lord executed judgments. And historians have seen a correspondence between those plagues 
and certain Egyptian gods. So what God was doing was not only delivering his people from slavery, but he's delivering them from an idolatrous environment so that they could worship him alone. It was and is an exclusive covenant with God that he asks of his people. And that, and that is why marriage is so sacred. It mirrors this covenant with God. And so things like open marriage or polygamous marriage or adulterous marriage are expressly forbidden as violations of the covenant they represent. Moses continues in verse 21, Furthermore, the Lord was angry with me because of you, and he swore that I should not cross the Jordan, that I should not enter the good land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. For I must die in this land. I must not go over the Jordan. For you shall go over and take possession of the good land. Take care, lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you, and make a carved image the form of anything that your Lord your God has forbidden you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. So once again, we've heard it before in Deuteronomy, Moses tells his story. He does not get to go into the promised land. And if his sin is judged so severely, Moses says we really need to rethink whether we want to chase these dark idols of our own. He is a deterrent for us. Moses hopes that the people of Israel and us, we will be spared such consequences. So he urges them, don't forget your covenant and chase after idols because the covenant is exclusive. The Lord, he's a consuming fire and a jealous God. He will not share the affection of his people with idols. And that's made explicit in the book of Leviticus. Listen to this passage. He says, If in spite of this you will not listen to me, but walk contrary to me, then I will walk contrary to you in fury, and I myself will discipline you sevenfold for your sins. You shall eat the flesh of your sons, and you shall eat the flesh of your daughters, and I will destroy your high places. These are idolatrous places. And cut down your incense altars and cast your dead bodies upon the dead bodies of your idols and my soul will abhor you. God has a zero tolerance for idolatry amongst his people. It is, in the imagery of, especially of the Old Testament, it's, it's adulterous. Idolatry is adultery in our relationship with God. Ezekiel says, that those of you who escape will remember me among the nations where they are carried captive. How I have been broken over their whoring heart that has departed from me and over their eyes that go whoring after their idols. Idolatry is adultery in the eyes of God. And that's one of the reasons he hates it so. He is a jealous lover. Now, Mark Twain was never a friend of biblical Christianity. And he, he wrote, um, If I were to construct a God, I would furnish him with some qualities and characteristics which the present God lacks. For instance, he said, He would not be a jealous God, a trait so small that even men despise it in each other. And what Twain misses 
is the virtuous side of jealousy. Um, Paul Copen asked the question in his book, Is God a Moral Monster? Um, when can jealousy be a good thing? And part of his answer it goes like this. In God's case, that answer is good. Jealousy is good when we are rummaging around the garbage piles of life and avoiding the source of satisfaction. He says, it reminds me of a comic strip I once saw of a dog who had been drinking out of a toilet bowl. With water dripping from his snout, Fido looks up to tell us, it doesn't get any better than this. He says, instead of enjoying fresh spring water, we look for stagnant, crummy substitutes that inevitably fail us. He goes on and says, a wife who doesn't get jealous and angry when another woman is flirting with her husband isn't really committed to the marriage relationship. Outrage, pain, anguish, these are the appropriate responses to such deep violation. God isn't some abstract entity or impersonal principle. He says we should be amazed that the creator of the universe would so deeply connect himself to human beings that he would open himself to sorrow and anguish in the face of human rejection and betrayal. God's jealousy is a reflection of his love. Deuteronomy 6 says, You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. For the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God, lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. We are inclined sometimes to think that the God of our making is not going to be jealous. But the real God of history and Scripture loves too deeply and is far too holy to be anything less. So, is the momentary pleasure of an idolatrous fling really worth crossing this jealous lover? And Moses says, no, it is never worth the consequences of that. In verse 25, Moses continues, and he says, when you father children and children's children, grandchildren, and have grown old in the land, if you act corruptly by making a carved image, an idol, in the form of anything, and by doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God so as to provoke him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will soon utterly perish from the land that you're going over the Jordan to possess. You will not live long in it, but will be utterly destroyed. And the Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and you'll be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. And there you will serve gods of wood and stone, the work of human hands that neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. God is calling the people of Israel and us to a persevering faithfulness that shapes generations. That these people who are about to enter the land would be so deeply moved, so deeply committed to their covenant with God that they would in turn ensure the faithfulness of generations to follow by passing that passion on to them. They will prevail upon their children and their grandchildren to be faithful to the Lord and forsake the overtures of any idols. And the picture is of the severest consequences should they fall away. They'll be destroyed as a people. 
They'll be scattered from the land of promise. They'll be few in number. And interestingly, they will be allowed to worship the idols that they wanted to worship. That's part of their discipline. They get what they so thought they wanted. And what they wanted would turn out not to be what they had expected. Um, I'm the youngest of three kids. I have an older brother and an older sister. And if you were going to describe my brother when he was younger, um, in a single word, it would be Henri. Okay. He, he was uh, nonstop trouble and mischief from the time he was little until he married a good woman and she straightened him out. Um, most of this, he's 11 years older than me, so mostly I know this by the stories that I heard. And one of the stories, when he was young, he had to be 10, 12 years old, my dad got one of those really cheap, nasty, uh, it's a boy's cigars. You remember those? The kind that not even cigar smokers would smoke. And it was laying on my dad's desk, and my brother was wearing my mom out to be able to smoke that cigar, just pestering her to death. And my mom was really a very soft-spoken, sweet woman, but she was wise. And she finally said, okay, all right, you want to smoke the cigar? You can smoke the cigar. You just have to smoke all of it. And so she sent him with matches and cigar out to the garage to smoke that cigar. He got sick as a dog, and he never smoked a cigar again to this day that I, that I know of. Um, see, what, he, what that idol promised to him and what it delivered were two totally different things. Listen again to David Paulison. He says, each idol makes false promises and gives false warnings. Because both the promises and warnings are lies, service to each idol results in a hangover of misery and accursedness. They are under the immediate wrath of God who frequently does not allow such things to work well in his world. Chris Wright says, The worst thing about idols, as the Hebrew scriptures so tirelessly point out, is that they are utterly useless when you need them the most. To give us over to what we desire is one of the shape of God's most severe discipline. It's not a pretty picture when he does that. So as we become aware of the idols of our day tempting our hearts and we are inclined to say yes, it's good to ask the simple question, where will this lead? Where will this lead when I wake up tomorrow? Where will this lead a year from now? Where will this lead a decade or two from now? Or a generation or two from now? Where will this idol lead me? Moses, in one of the most somber portions of scripture now interjects a beautiful picture of hope listen to what he says in the next three verses he says but from there okay, from the place of your darkest idolatry from the place of your greatest suffering he says from that place you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him if you will search after him with all your heart and with all your soul 
That means you'll search for Him instead of idols. When you are in tribulation and all these things come upon you in those latter days, you'll return to the Lord your God and obey His voice. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that He swore to them. See, even when we've fallen headlong into the darkest place of our idolatrous sin, from there, there's a greater grace at work. God is inviting us back. He is calling us back. He is rescuing us from that place. We should note that it's in our suffering, in the lowest places where we turn back to the Lord. And some of you are there now. There is a dark and secret thing going on in your life. Maybe no one knows about it. And it has enslaved you and made you miserable. And you are not sure if you can go on or if you can ever be free from it. God says, from there, if you will search for me with all your heart, you will find me. It's his promise to his people. If you will forsake the idols and with all your heart turn to me, you will find me. God is making a way out. He is drawing you back. He is merciful and faithful. And he is willing to rescue you, no matter where you are, if you will but search for him, he will be faithful to his promise. The question is, will you? Will you turn from your idols and search and seek the Lord? If you will, then this can be the day of your freedom. This can be the day when you find the Lord. Moses has warned us. He's trying to protect us from idolatry, and he's warned us about the severe consequences of chasing after lesser, smaller, deaf, dumb, and mute gods. Now he turns it around and he shows us a positive incentive. He shows us the incomparable greatness of our God. In verse 32, he says, Ask now of the days that are past, which were before you, since the day that God created man on the earth, and ask from one end of heaven to the other whether such a great thing as this has ever happened or was ever heard of. Did any people ever hear the voice of a God speaking out of the midst of the fire as you have heard and still live? Or has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself from the midst of another nation by trials, by signs, by wonders, and by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, by great deeds of terror, all of which the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes? To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God. There is no other besides him. Moses says, search all of history from before you were born, from before the first man was born. Search the heavens from one end to the other, and you'll never find a God like this. You'll never find a God 
who speaks to his people and reveals himself to his people through his word like your God does. You'll never find a God who rescues and delivers his people like your God does. There has never been a God like that. Truly, the Lord is God. There is no other besides him, Moses says. And he continues with that. Out of heaven, he let you hear his voice that he might discipline you. And on earth, he let you see his great fire and you heard his words out of the midst of the fire because he loved your fathers and chose their offspring after them and brought you out of Egypt with his own presence by his great power, driving out before you nations greater and mightier than yourselves to bring you in, to give you their land for an inheritance as it is this day. Know therefore today and lay it to your heart that the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. There is no other. And God, his uniqueness, Moses says, is because of the way he speaks to his people. The other, the other gods are, are dumb. They don't speak. Your God speaks to you. Chris Wright says that when you contrast God with idols, he says the contrast is not between the visible and invisible or between spiritual and material, but between the audible and the inaudible. Idols have form but do not speak. Yahweh has no form, but he decisively speaks. Idols are visible but dumb. Yahweh is invisible but eloquent, addressing his people in words of promise and demand, gift, and claim. See, the gulf between Yahweh, our God, and these little idols is huge. There's no comparison, Moses is reminding us. And he reminds them of, of the way he speaks and again of his great deliverance. No God does things like that. And he adds to those two things now, God's faithful love for their fathers and his loving choice of them. This love drives his deliverance and his giving them of the land as inheritance. There's no God that loves like their God. Know therefore today and lay it to your heart that the Lord is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. There is no other. There is no God like your God. No God who has spoken like this God has spoken to you. No God who delivers like this God has delivered you. No God who loves like this God loves you. And if that's true, don't our idolatrous affections seem stupid? Why would we trade this God for that little bitty deaf dumb, blind idol. It's the same idol that Moses says in verse 28. This is their gods of wood and stone, work of human hands. They neither see, nor hear, nor eat, nor smell. The Old Testament mocks idols. And Isaiah does it fabulously. Listen to Isaiah 44. He says the carpenter stretches a line and he marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man, with the beauty of a man, to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars, or he, he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar, and the rain nourishes it, and then it becomes fuel for the man. He takes a part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread, and also he makes a god and worships it. 
He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. And also he warms himself and says, Ah, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my God. They know not, nor they discern, for he, God, has shut their eyes so that they cannot see in their hearts, so they cannot understand. No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, Now half of it I burned in the fire. I also baked bread on its coal, baked bread on its coals. I roasted meat and have eaten. And shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray, and he cannot deliver himself or say, Is there not a lie in my right hand? They're mocking the impotence of our idols that we make. Through it all, there is no God like our God. Our idols do not measure up, not even close. They cannot speak. They have no power. They surely do not love us, do they? So Moses says, this is what we must do. Verse 40. Therefore, you shall keep his statutes and his commandments, which I command you today, that it may go well with you and with your children after you, and that you may prolong your days in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for all time. Moses is challenging us. He's calling us to live in obedience to the one true God who loves us so with power and mercy. We would be fools to settle for our idols when we can serve a God like this. A God who has spoken to us by his own words and put them in this book so that we can know him and his good ways for us. A God who has delivered us from our captors, not just in Egypt. Egypt points to the great deliverance, which is the work Jesus did on the cross to rescue us from our sins. Galatians says, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us. So what do we do about those idols? Well, first of all, as Keller admonished us, it's good to be able to name them. Do you know the idols that you're vulnerable to, whose voice you hear and give a second hearing to? Can you name your idols? Do you know the ones that are wooing you, tempting you? Then once we've identified them, we know that we must choose. Our covenant with our God is an exclusive one. He will not allow us to happily worship our idols and name His name. Will you choose to be faithful to the Lord and forsake your idols? You know, most of us don't wake up one day and walk around and say, you know, today would be a great day to bow down and commit idolatrous sin. Be a good day for that. It's a long and slippery slope. It usually begins when our God becomes something less than incomparable. 
we begin to question his goodness or his power or his compassion, when we allow ourselves to become critical or disappointed or just indifferent and distant from our God so that he is not really the true God. He's less than that. When we are not searching for our God, idols are most easily found and their lies are most enticing. So perhaps today, along with throwing down our idols and saying no more, we should also say, we should also bow down before the true God and say yes forevermore. I will worship. I will seek the true God because he has promised me if I search for him with all my heart, I will find him. In just a couple minutes, the worship team is going to come and lead us in two closing songs. The first declares our soul devotion to Jesus. And towards the end of that song, if God's prompting you today about your coldness towards him or your vulnerability toward an idol, we'd like for you to come forward during that time and kneel down here at the front. And at the close of that first song, Mark Lederbach, one of our elders, is going to come and pray for you as you renounce your idols and as you say yes to the worship of the one true God with all your heart and all your soul. And then we'll join together in singing a second song that declares those same truths. But if you'll bow with me in prayer, then we'll stand and worship our great King. And Lord, forgive us our wayward hearts. We are attracted to bright and shiny and lesser things. And today your servant Moses reminds us, you are the incomparable God. There's no one else worthy of our worship. And oh, the severe consequences of forsaking that and chasing after lesser, even imaginary gods. So Lord, have mercy on us. Give us ears to hear your word and eyes to see the dark spots in our own heart. And give us faith to throw down the idols and covenant to pursue and love you with all our hearts.